Uh, well, good morning, everybody. Oh, I'm sure you can do a little bit better than that. Good morning, everyone. Uh, isn't it good that the sun is out now? I, who got woken up by the rain this morning? Yeah, I know. Quite something. Um, if I haven't met you before, uh, my name is James. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at City Church, and it's great to be with you uh, again this week. It's two weeks in a row for me at Bradley Stoke. What a treat. So it's great. Um, and uh, normally I'm down at the Cotton site, uh, and they're probably wondering, where is, where's James been the last couple of weeks? Well, I've been up here, and it's been great to be uh, with you all. We're going to be starting a six-week series today in the book of Habakkuk. So I'm going to tell you now to try and find Habakkuk, and by the time we get to reading it, hopefully you will have found it. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, It's a couple of uh, books before Haggai, which we finished off a few weeks ago. Uh, So do turn uh, to Habakkuk, and we've called this series Faith in the Darkness. Faith in the Darkness. Now, we'd planned to do this back in kind of May time, Uh, And so you think, wow, the providence of God in the season that we're in to be talking about faith in dark times seems very apt uh, right now. And um, that that phrase, faith in the darkness, really does summarize the book as a whole. Uh, Some of you might have studied this book before. I know there's a connect group uh, that is studying Habakkuk already. Uh, some of you may have flicked through it as part of a Bible reading plan. Some of you may have never had the opportunity to read it before. And uh, I really believe that this is going to serve us well in the coming weeks. Just to give you a, a, an idea of the significance uh, of this book in the context of just human history, perhaps one of the most well-known verses in this book is actually in chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says this, see the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. The righteous person will live by faith. That, that verse has been quoted Numerous times it was quoted in the New Testament as well by the Apostle Paul. And and it was this verse really that changed the landscape of Europe and the church many hundreds of years ago. So if you just cast your mind, I don't think anyone was here in the 16th century. um, But if you cast your mind back to 16th century Europe, there was a a German monk by the name of Martin Luther. And uh, he read verses like this. And I had a revelation of who Jesus was and that righteousness, being made right with God, came through faith. Not by works, not by observing religious practices, not by turning up to church religiously every Sunday and making sure you're, you're at the prayer meeting, not any of those kinds of things. But Martin Luther had this revelation that righteousness, to be made right with God, was to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that was against the backdrop of, of the Catholic Church. And after having this revelation of this, he wrote up what is known as the 95 Thesis. 95 bullet points attacking the religiosity of the church at the time. And he nailed it onto the door of the church in the town that he was in. And this is some of what he talked about that righteousness, the righteous person, will live. By faith. And that launched what is known as the Protestant Reformation. And we stand in the good of that 500 or so years later. This verse, this book, 
is significant. And now we don't know much about Habakkuk. There's not much written about him. Uh, But we know that he was writing in the 7th century BC. And it was decades before the Israelites were taken into captivity, uh, removed from their land. And so it comes just before Haggai, which we finished a couple of weeks ago. It comes before they were in exile. And we find that Habakkuk is deeply disturbed by what he's seeing around him. Deeply disturbed amongst the people of God. And even more disturbed at God's lack of action. So he's angry with the people of God, but he's angry towards God as well. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 1 and in verse 2. I think the words will appear on the screen. And this book really is structured around Habakkuk brings his complaints to God and then God responds. It's a kind of conversation between Habakkuk and then God. And this is how he starts. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Just in those four verses or those three verses that we read, we see how troubled Habakkuk is. What does he say? We see that there is violence. There is injustice, there is wrongdoing, there is strife, there is conflict. And all these things are happening amongst the people of God. Amongst the Israelites, there was a a leadership crisis in which the rich exploited the poor. The law was either twisted or ignored. The the court system was crooked and corrupt. Officials were only interested in, in making money for themselves And of course, Habakkuk is expressing his anguish and his despair at these things. That these are the people of God. They were supposed to be set apart, to live differently, to be distinctive. And yet they've dived into corruption and evil and violence. But what is striking about the way that Habakkuk expresses his concerns is that beyond it just being despair about the people and where they're at. There is despair at God's apparent indifference. I don't know if you noticed that as we read those verses. Look at what Habakkuk says and look who he directs his concerns to. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you don't listen? I cry out to you and you do not save. He says to God, why do you look at me and injustice and how do you tolerate injustice? In a sense, he's saying, God, how can you stand there and just allow all this to happen? Do you care? I wonder if you've ever said that to God before. I wonder if you've ever thought that. Have you ever been so troubled Or in such a place of despair that you've said, how long, O Lord? Where are you, God? Perhaps it's 
the state of the nation just this week. It's like, what is going on around here? How long are we going to have to go through this for? Perhaps it's when you switch on the news and you see the wars that are happening in different nations across the world. Perhaps it's the environmental crisis and the rapid decay of our world. Perhaps it's suffering and challenge in your own life, grief, sickness, disappointment. Whatever it is that you're facing, there has likely been a time, if you're a Christian here this morning, where you've said, how long, O Lord? And the good news is that you are in good company. Because Habakkuk prays this out. The Psalms, if you've read through the Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalmists regularly go to God and express their emotions to God. And even the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, betrayed, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? He said, take this cup away from me, Lord. Take this suffering away from me. And so Habakkuk hangs out all his dirty laundry for everyone to see, for us to read, his anguish, his despair, his, his heartache, his emotions, he brings them to God and says, what are you doing, God? And it is worth pausing there, isn't it? And seeing that expressing our emotions and our pain and our suffering, our confusion, despair, and bringing them to God is part of what it means to be a Christian. Bringing your emotions to God is part of what it means to follow Jesus. We're very good at moaning to one another, aren't we? We're good at blaming one another. We're good at moaning to one another. I don't know if you've ever observed two people moaning at each other about different things. It's like they're playing top trumps as to who has the biggest excuse to moan. We're not moaning to God, but we're expressing our emotions to him. I wonder when was the last time that instead of moaning to someone, you went to God first? And expressed your emotions to him. We see a helpful example in Habakkuk of what this is like. And so Habakkuk does that. He he brings his emotions to God. And and what is the response that you would expect God to have? What would you expect of what you know of God? What would you expect God to do as he hears Habakkuk expressing his emotions? From your understanding of who God is. What would be your expectation? Well, in in verse 5, we see how God describes his rescuing plan. In verse 5, it says, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I mean, that sounds positive, doesn't it? If you're Habakkuk listening to that, there's that kind of swell, there's the crescendo, oh, finally, God has heard me. It's going to do something about this. You're going to be utterly amazed. And with bated breath, Habakkuk waits to hear what it is that God is going to do. And in verse 6, it says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. You can just imagine Habakkuk in that moment. Sorry, God. You're raising up who? You're raising up the Babylonians. Sorry, God, you've got to be mistaken. 
Have you heard what I've been saying? There is injustice and violence all around us, and you're choosing a nation that is even more perverse to rescue us. How does that even work? The worst of the worst is coming to save us. I don't know if you've ever had those moments where perhaps you've uh, taken a train trip to, to London, say. You've got on the train, you've had, got a day out in London, uh, you've had a great day, and uh, it's time to go home, and it's about 7pm, you're waiting on the platform, and then that tannoy announcement that every passenger hates to hear, the 1903 train from London Paddington stopping at Reading, Swindon, Bath, Spa, Chippenham and Bristol has been cancelled. Did you like that? That was good, wasn't it? I thought it was quite good. Uh, it's been cancelled. No, no, this can't be happening to me. It's 7pm, I'm exhausted. I've been walking around London all day. I just want to get home and you hear that tannoy announcement. So you go over to the train office, ticket office, and uh, you join the queue. It's your turn. You're, you're angry. You're cross. You're frustrated. And as you're expressing your despair, the, the, the ticket officer says, I'm just going to stop you there because I've got some good news. In fact, you are going to be utterly amazed. We've organized for a replacement coach service that is going to go to Portsmouth, Southampton, Salisbury, through Wiltshire, and finally at Bristol. Isn't that brilliant? I don't know about you, but getting on a coach, for me, is the worst thing in the world. I did it, I did it as a school teacher. Horrendous. I've never had a good experience on a coach. The solution is worse than the problem. I'd rather be stranded in Paddington. There's nice coffee shops. There's toilets there. It's fine. I'd rather be stranded. The, prob- the solution was worse than the problem. And you can just imagine Habakkuk saying, how is this good news? How is this good news? In some sense, the cure is worse than the disease. That's how it would have felt for Habakkuk. And the irony is is that God, God knows this, doesn't he? He knows this because look how he describes then the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And then he goes on to... As if this was going to allay any fears of Habakkuk, he then goes on to say, these are a ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. It doesn't sound good so far. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dust. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities, but building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Doesn't seem to be anything amazing about that response. The solution God presents appears to be worse than the problem. So it's worth asking the question, what, what is going on here? What is happening here? What sense does it make for God to use the evil Babylonians to judge the people of Israel? Surely two wrongs don't make a right. 
And to understand what's going on here, we have to understand something about how God interacted and related to his people in the Old Testament. You see, starting with Abraham in the book of Genesis, God shows this, this family that traveled around to become his own people, a, a, a people that he would call his own, not so that they would be special, but to be a blessing then to the nations around. He would take this family and establish them as a nation so that the nations around them would be blessed by them. In fact, we read of promises of the nations then traveling to Israel to experience the blessing of God, that they would be a shining example, a signpost amongst all the other gods that they worship, that there is actually one true God. And so God promises this to Abraham. And then we read through Genesis and Exodus in which God uh, leads the people to their own land establishes them, a land of blessing and flourishing where the nations would come. And so the land that they were established on was equated to blessing. But, but if you know anything about the human condition, which we all should do, the capacity to mess things up is always right around the corner, isn't it? You see, the blessing of, of the land came with some strings attached, which was that the people of God would obey the laws of God. Not to just kind of uh, serve a a law-keeping God like a headmaster, but because these laws would be for the benefit of the people. These parameters, this framework of laws would be a blessing to the people. But if they were to reject those laws, reject God, to disobey him, then that blessing would be removed. That justice would be carried out. And what we see is is that humanity's natural trajectory was always and is always to move away from God. It's what the Bible talks as sin, calls sin. To live for ourselves and not to follow God. And we see that time and time again. In fact, we read about it in in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 21. Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes what happened with the people of God. He says, for all they, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This disobedience dominated. And the covenants, the the promises that God had made with his people were disobeyed by those people. In in Deuteronomy, which is Moses' kind of parting speech to the people of God before he dies, talks about this reality of, of blessings and curses about obedience and disobedience. He talks about that in chapters 26 to 30 of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 30, just listen to the warnings that Moses gives to his people way ahead of time, before they ever inherit a land for themselves. Listen to what Moses says. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good 
and death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering in. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear and are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Do you see the grace of God in that? That way ahead of time, God is saying, this is what is going to happen. So there's no mystery here. There's no, there's no cruelty here. God is laying out and saying, you can choose life and follow me and you will be blessed. Or you can choose death and disobey me and go your own way. That's the grace of God in, in the Old Testament. And what do the people do? They, well, they get confused and they, they make altars to themselves and, they, and sin rises up and they, they go their own way time and time again. And, and despite the warnings, the Israelites do not choose life. And it's evidenced in Habakkuk, isn't it? Because Habakkuk is then crying out to God. There is injustice and violence everywhere around him. And like any good parent, consequences follow. And so God would use the Babylonians to remove the people of Israel from their promised land, the land of blessing, and lead them into exile and captivity because of their disobedience. There's a stripping away of all the things that were good to remind the Israelites, to, to prove to them, to show them, I warned you and this is what is going to happen. I am a God of my word. He's a just God. Now, now our, our modern Western minds here in the UK struggle, don't they, with the ideas of blessings and curses, uh, obedience and disobedience, authority and submission. We don't like that kind of language. We get, we get a little bit angsty about it. But, and there are many benefits to living in a, a society uh, where there's liberal democracy and there's freedoms that we can enjoy. But when those freedoms become entitlements, that we deserve, when it comes to matters of judgment or discipline, we can find ourselves reacting to the idea that God in some way could take those things away from us. It doesn't sound like a good God to me, you might be sitting here thinking. How can God be truly loving if he allows or even inflicts suffering on people? Doesn't God work everything for my good? And these are all important questions to ask. And in this series, we're going to look at some of these things together. In fact, behind Habakkuk's cry of despair are some of these questions, aren't they? God, how can you allow these things to happen? Why are you seemingly indifferent to injustice? When will this pain go away? How long will I have to wait for? I was reminded in Isaiah 55, 
these well-known verses that God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. It's normal to not understand. There are things that we will not know the answers to. But there are some things that we do know. And just as I finish, I just want to look at three things that we do know about God in the face of suffering and injustice and evil and darkness. And the first is this, that God is not indifferent to our suffering. He is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not apathetic. He's not lazy. He's not thinking someone else is just going to sort that out. What we see is, is that God had a bigger strategic plan at play, both in this specific story, but throughout human history, there is a bigger story at play. And whilst God's response to Habakkuk wasn't what Habakkuk had expected, he wasn't indifferent. You see, we see that God's judgment of Israel would be followed by God's judgment of Babylon. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, this is what Habakkuk says. He says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. That sounds like strong words, but that is Habakkuk waiting. That he knows that God is not only going to judge Israel, but he's also then going to judge Babylon as well for their injustice. We can know and trust that God is a God of justice. That the things that we see around us, or even in our own lives, when someone has wronged you, or you've experienced being sinned against, or the things that we see leaders doing around the globe, God is a God of justice. That he will have his say. That one day every person is going to come before the Lord Jesus and give account of their life. And God is going to have justice on them. That's why we want to preach the gospel, friends, because like Moses, we want to tell people there is life and there is death. Choose life. Choose life. God is a God of justice. Perhaps you're in that place where you are crying out to God and the answers that you've been receiving is like Habakkuk's response like God that is not what I wanted I, I, I want to be saved but not like that God Can I encourage you in those moments to remember the bigger story it's hard to do it in those moments of despair but there is a bigger strategic plan that God has The second thing is, is that God endured suffering himself. This is so important, isn't it? This is the unique claim of Christianity. That God can make these plays and seem to orchestrate things and, and yet not keep it all at arm's length. God endured suffering himself. No other religion offers this. You see, hundreds of years after Habakkuk was alive, God took on human flesh 
dwelt among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we read in the Gospels is that Jesus experienced grief at the death of his friend Lazarus. Mocking at the hands of religious leaders. Anxiety-inducing pain at his execution. Abandonment and betrayal from his closest friends. Jesus experienced suffering. And through it all, he never once moaned. He never sinned. He never disobeyed the will of his father, not for a moment. And seeing the corruption of humankind in every human heart, the judgment and punishment that that you and I and every other person that has lived deserves wasn't placed on us, but it was placed on Jesus at the cross. God's judgment poured out on Jesus instead of us. It was this incredible exchange where we should have been the ones up there, and yet the perfect Son of God hung on a tree to take on the sin and guilt and shame and the punishment for that on our behalf. In fact, it says Jesus became sin and gave us his righteousness Jesus took on the curse of God so that we might receive the blessings of God. That's why we're here today, folks, because we have received the blessings of God. So God endured and experienced suffering himself. And thirdly, we see that Christ defeated evil and suffering and death forever. And that is our hope. The the bigger strategic plan that is at play is that God in Christ defeated sin, death and darkness forever. And one day he's going to come back and return and make all things new. That is the promise of the Bible. That all things are going to be made new. Whatever your experience is right now, God is going to make all things new. Whatever you have poured your tears over, God is going to make all things new. Whatever you are experiencing, whatever heartache and emotions you are experiencing, Christ will return and make all things new. That is the promise of the gospel. And so faith in the darkness is not just kind of stiff up a lip, let's just get through it. It's not just, well, if I sort out my my spiritual disciplines and I just beef up spiritually a bit, somehow I'm going to get through this. Faith in the darkness is knowing that Jesus Christ defeated evil and death and darkness for you. It's putting your trust, your faith in him. We couldn't defeat darkness on our own. Why do we think we can? It's only Jesus And because he came out of the grave when he was crucified, buried in the grave for three days, he defeated death forever and we put our trust in him. In the one who will carry us through life, carry us through death and into an eternal life with him. An eternity of blessing. That is the promise that we find both in Habakkuk And he begins to see it in the chapters ahead. As he pours his emotions out, he begins to realize what God is going to do. That's why we should gather to pray. Because as we pour our emotions to him, God reveals himself to us. 
That's why you should personally pour your emotions out to God because in your darkest night, God will remind you that he is with you. Folks, the gospel is our only hope. It's our only hope. And as we enter this season where we're all just trying to work out what is life in the UK going to be like in Europe? Do you know what? The church has got an extraordinary opportunity to point people to light. It's got an extraordinary opportunity. Maybe the best opportunity in our lifetime. I don't think that's too overstated. That coming out of COVID and then into what we're experiencing, this might be the best opportunity we have to say, yes, there is darkness everywhere, but our trust is in Jesus. That's why we're gonna, how we're going to help Bristol believe. That's how we're going to help our friends come to know Jesus, is to listen and then say, I, my hope is in Jesus and not in Whitehall. My hope is in Jesus, not the European Union. My hope is in Jesus, not vaccines. My hope is in him, in the gospel. Why don't we stand and let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the truth that we find in the Bible. That you are always working. That you are never indifferent to our pain, to our suffering, to our grief, to our disappointment. You are never indifferent. And even when we don't necessarily receive the answers that we are looking for, Lord, thank you that you are always orchestrating you are always working. And Lord, we see that primarily in Jesus, who brought his kingdom to us and said, I am bringing in a new kingdom that will never fade, that will never falter, that will never be destroyed. Lord Jesus, we put our hope in you. And I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here that whoever is experiencing grief, disappointment, hardship, illness, I pray, Lord Jesus, would you draw near to them right now. As we pour out our emotions to you right now, would you restore our hope? Would you restore our faith in you? Why don't you just, you can open your hands, but I just believe that perhaps for some of you, You've never made that step to express your emotions to God. That you've thought, God, God wouldn't be interested in what I have to say. God doesn't care about the condition of my life. He wouldn't want to hear me moaning. I just encourage you that as, as we worship now, take the opportunity, whether it's just in your mind or even out loud, to express your emotions to God today.